All right, Romans chapter 9, maybe. Okay, oh, that went quick. Romans. For those listening online, if you're looking for the Sunday school lesson, it's been deleted. Because that was a train wreck of epic proportions. Oh, that was so bad. Oh, yeah, I deleted it before I even said, I was already deleting it while I was preaching, okay? I was already like, come on, let me delete it. Come on. So I got it from everywhere, I think. Now, who knows? It'll probably show up on some site somewhere, but I tried my best. So if, uh, it, yeah, yeah. That's, what, that's a sermon I would have had to review myself to critique, okay? Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, I'm sorry. It's gone. So just, just pretend like it would never happened, okay? All right. There we go. All right. Hopefully this goes better. Maybe. I'm afraid to even say anything. Romans chapter 9. Sometimes it goes well. Sometimes it doesn't. Okay. All right. Romans chapter... I've been preaching long enough to know how that works. Okay. Romans chapter 9. I've had lots of success and sometimes lots of failures. Here we go. Romans chapter 9. I know what I have here in front of me, but I'm afraid to say the word. It's an outline. (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to say anything about it. But I just don't ask questions. Okay, maybe I should do that. Um, but yeah, we have an outline. All right, Romans chapter 9. Um, do, do I say outline? Okay, here we go. Romans chapter 9. What we have looked at so far is we first and foremost, what we did is we realized that Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 are three chapters that mention Israel. It seems really weird because the book is not really about Israel. It's about salvation. So Paul, for some weird reasons, takes this massive detour in 9, 10, 11 to mention Israel. That seems weird because if you go from 8 to 12, it seems to work perfectly without talking about Israel. Okay, But he decides, nope, we're going to talk about Israel because it's very, very important. And I've tried to explain to you why it's important. Okay, But there's a lot of people out there who would say it's not important because they would say Israel is not Israel. Israel is the church. And we've talked all about that. So what we did is to avoid all of that argument is we spent about four weeks looking at all kinds of promises to the nation of Israel. And what we determined is that these promises were clearly stated and these promises have not clearly been fulfilled unless we say they're not literally fulfilled, which leads to all kinds of problems, right? Because we know lots of the prophecies were literally fulfilled, like, I don't know, a babe being born in Bethlehem. of a virgin, right? That Those were literal. So what we decided is God can't be done with the nation of Israel because there are promises he's never fulfilled and giving them to us and saying that they're not fulfilled in a literal way destroys any meaningful hermeneutic. Does that make sense? All right, so we we established that. However, when you start working through Romans 9, some people get really like, wait, 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 wait. God is done with Israel because not all Israel is Israel. Therefore, Israel's replaced and we're Israel. Well, that's not what the verse says says not all Israel is Israel. It doesn't say that we're, that we're now Israel. It does not say that. So we had to do a little bit of work. And we drew a distinction. What was the major distinction that we put together? I'm not even going to ask. What is the two? The major distinction that we made is the distinction between national Israel and the individual Israelite or individual Jew. There were promises made to the nation right? That have not been fulfilled. But those promises to the nation, until they're all fulfilled, the individual Jew is still saved like everyone has been saved. By what? By faith. All right? So there's a distinction there. And he draws this distinction in the, uh, the, the chapter, in chapter 9. 
So, what we've looked at is the first thing we saw in verses 1 through 3, we see Paul expressing his great sorrow for the nation of Israel. We looked at that. Then, starting in verse 4 to 5, we see that he clearly outlines the great blessings that Israel had received. Right? Then, in verse 6, we started talking about what we refer to as the great election. And I'll read this. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are Israel. And you're like, oh, wait, what, what's the distinction here? What's the distinction? Well, he draws some, he, he gives us some examples. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed, they, thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, they are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also have conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau have I hated. This refers to election, right? And we see the choosing of one over another, right? We see Isaac over Ishmael, correct? We see Jacob over Esau. We see this distinction being made, and that that begins to give us the doctrine of election. But as soon as you talk about electing, God choosing one and not the other, loving one and hating the other, that raises some serious problems, and nobody likes it. I understand it. I don't like it. Nobody likes it. But when you don't like something, you have an option, right? You either can, cho- you can choose to just accept it, even though you don't like it, or you can choose to change it so it's more to your liking. But once you start changing the Bible that it's more to your liking, you destroy the Bible from being the Bible, right? You can't just change it to make it what you want it to be. Agreed? All right, so what happens starting in verse 14? Starting in verse 14, he realizes that what he just said is going to bother some people, right? So he acknowledges it by saying this in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. He immediately is like, hey, someone's going to be like, God is, God is messed up. How could God do that? I mean, that is messed up. And don't we all agree it's kind of messed up that he loved Jacob and hated Esau, and it had nothing to do with what they did. And I, look, I, it bothers me, but it, it, God doesn't care that it bothers us. I, I know that that's not very 2022, but he doesn't really care that it bothers us. Truth, truth never cares if it bothers you, right? Okay, if, if, you, if you get the diagnosis for cancer, it doesn't say, oh, this is going to really bother them. Right? It, the, the diagnosis doesn't care. Right? It, it's just, that's the way it is. I, I'm not, I don't like it, but it's the way it is. So what does he begin to try to do in verses 14? Uh, we went, I think we took it all the way down to verse 29. He tries to do something in all of these verses. Does anybody remember what he tries to do? Yeah, he tries to show that, that there's, that, that we called it the great justice of God or the justice of God. That God is just, even though it appears unjust to us. 
So he talks about it in verse 14. Basically, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? And then he starts verse 15. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In other words, mercy and compassion is up to God's discretion. Okay? Well, because if it, I mean, if, if, if it's not up to him, then it's up to us, which would, well, then not make it really mercy or compassion. Verse 16, so then it is not of him that willeth, it's not of him that willeth, it's not about our will, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Verse 17, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. We talked about how troubling that is, yes? Here's Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh is not a theological concept. Pharaoh is not some abstract something. Pharaoh was a real person. And God raised up this person for what purpose? That he could show his power, right? And that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. He raised up Pharaoh for his purpose so that his name would be magnified and he could show his power on him. That is troubling and everyone should be willing to acknowledge that's troubling. Right? You say, well, it's not troubling to you. Of course, because you're not Pharaoh. Pharaoh. It's not troubling to you because it's not maybe someone you love or care about. But Pharaoh was a real person. That, that bothers me a little bit. Verse 18. Therefore hath, he, therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. And we looked at all the different times that God hardened Pharaoh. And it, once again, is somewhat disturbing, yes? Because he didn't have to harden him once. But he hardened him multiple times. He could have resolved, the, I want to make sure everyone understands, he could have resolved the entire situation with Israel and Egypt in just a couple of minutes. Right? He could have changed Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh could have been like, what are we doing? Why do we have all these people in captivity? Why are we using them as slaves? This is wrong. Let them go. Does it work out that way? No. Moses comes, let my people go. No. 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 And each time, not almost every time, but in multiple times, he hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he will say no. So then God pours out the plagues, which leads to death and destruction. God could have avoided all of that. Now we think the reason he did that was not only to magnify his name, but it was an attack upon Egyptian deities because every plague went after an Egyptian deity. Right, whether it was the Nile River, whatever it may be, there were deities attached to everything that they destroyed, that the plagues destroyed, which showed that, well, God had a purpose in it. Now, do I like that purpose? I'd be like, those are people. And God's like, yeah, but I'm God. And it's, it's okay to say that it's difficult to, to handle because it is. Verse 19, thou will say unto me, why doth he yet find fault for who hath resisted his will? And that's a good argument. Well, then how could you say Pharaoh was bad? How could you say Pharaoh was in the wrong? If God's the one hardening, he can't go against God's will. If he was doing God's will, then how can he be blamed? 
How could Pharaoh be blamed for doing God's will? Man, that's, that's a million-dollar philosophical question that will cause you to have nightmares at night. You're like, what? I don't even have a good answer for this. Right? right? I mean, it was preordained what was going to happen to Christ. Those who were doing those things were doing that which was preordained, but yet they are con- condemned as being evil for really carrying out God's purpose. And I know theologians for 2,000 years have tried every trick in the book. Well, well, it doesn't really mean that, but it means people, and we try everything to get around it, but what it says is what it says. And I, and, and I just don't want to, there's, there's a couple of problems here, and I, and I want to at least talk about this from a practical standpoint. We, people kind of get divided into groups, right? And here's what happens. You have one group who's like, this is horrible, this is bad, there's no way God would act this way, and they set out to rewrite a theology that makes God look like a really good person and not really a bad guy, in a sense, get him off the hook. Because they're really bothered by the fact that God would do this, and it affects real people. And they're bothered by it. And you've got to understand their motivation. Their motivation is not because they hate the Bible. Their motivation is, this just seems messed up, and as they will say, my God can never do anything like that. I understand their motivation. Now, on the other side, this sometimes happens in the Reformed world, and this is not good. On this side, we have a tendency to say, well, God is God. He can do whatever he wants. He's sovereign. Get over it. And we don't seem to be bothered by the fact that real people suffered and died. We're just like, well, God's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. Okay, that's, Wow. Wait till something happens to someone in your family. I'll be like, well, God's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. All of a sudden, you won't feel so, so arrogant and condescending about it, will you? Your attitude will change dramatically when it hits close to home, right? It's always easy when it's someone over there, you know? Someone over there, you're like, ah, whatever, whatever. But when it hits you, all are like, why doesn't anyone care? Well, because we care about as much as you did. So just understand that doctrinal truth does not give you the right to stop being compassionate and feel the, the reality of a situation. Does that make sense? Just because you've got the right theology should not turn you into a cold, arrogant, condescending jerk who doesn't care about people. If our theology turns us into that, I think we've missed the point. Right? On the other side, you can be like, man, there's just no way God could be that way. And so then you set out to rewrite it. That's met. In other words, we have a tendency to do what? Go to equal and opposite extremes. We should be broken by this. Right? This shouldn't be like, we're reformed, God can do whatever he wants. No, 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 no. We should be like, man, I don't understand this either. I should, we should all enter the struggle here. This is hard to grasp. He takes Pharaoh, hardens him. It, the Egyptians are hardened so that God pours out their wrath upon them. Firstborn children are killed as a result. That is troubling. Now, I can't excuse God. I, in a sense, I don't have to excuse God. God can do what he wants. But I'm not going to sit there and rewrite the story to make somehow it look better. We have to just deal with it. D- does that make some sense? I hope it does. All right. And then what, does he, then what does he go on to say? Verse 20. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Now, this is harsh. 
He's like, hey, I know you don't like it, but who are you to question how God made you? And the answer is, we can't. Now look, when I leave it in Romans, I can sit here and be like, I've got, them, I got my theology down. I've got my theology degrees. I've got this down. But when you think about the implications of this in real life, it's hard to wrap your mind around. It's hard to wrap your mind around. I can just go through things that happened to me, and I'm like, why did I get put in that situation? Why was I in that situation, right? right? When, when, when other kids were sitting around with their parents, you know, eating cake and watching TV, I was being burned with a curling iron tied up in a closet. Why? Yeah, there's no answers. And what's great is the Bible doesn't attempt to give answers. Where everybody else was having a great day, Job was kind of suffering everyone. Has he ever given an answer? That my favorite part of Job is he doesn't give an answer. Like, in some ways you say, that should bother you. No, 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 no. I love that because that's real life. He doesn't get an answer. He brings God all kinds of questions and then God just responds to his questions with questions until Job realizes, never mind. Okay, I'm just going to be quiet now. But, All of Job's questions and all of Job's pain did not change God's purpose or God's plan. Does that make some sense? So who are we to question God? Look, nobody likes this, and I can understand why the world and skeptics would be like, that's messed up. Just make sure you understand this. This is very important before we even move forward. Whether there's a God or whether there's not a God, Guess what? In life, you're still going to experience those possible same horrible tragedies, right? With or without a God, what happened to me happened to me. Nothing's going to change that. If I throw out God, nothing's going to change what happened, right? And do I still have a good answer? No. Right now, you're sitting here in church waiting for me to shut up so you can go home and eat. And there's other people right now. There's a child somewhere right now who won't see the end of this day because they will die of starvation. Thousands of children die every day in our world from starvation. Every day. Why are they there and you're here and you're going to go home and probably complain about what you have to eat? Correct? Why? With God or without God, the same situation is there. God, and some people think God is there to provide us all the answers to it. Like some people think you come to Christianity, you get God, God. Well, it makes sense of everything in the world. It doesn't always make sense. The reality is the reality. But we are, who, who are we to question it? And then look at what, what it says. Very important. Next verse. Speaking of God. Hath not the potter. Who's the potter in the story? God. Power over the, who's the clay? We are of the same lump to maketh one vessel unto honor and another unto. Does everybody understand the implications of that verse? 
Does everyone understand the possible implications of that verse? Right? Okay, or we'll go beyond Pharaoh, okay? We'll say two bottles of water, right? Okay, they come from the same piece of plastic, let's say, right? Two of them are made. One is made, how does the text say? Unto honor, okay? That's the one for honor, and this one is the one for dishonor. Now, if we just leave it there, okay, some people get honor and position and prestige and popularity and fame, and others don't. That's still kind of messed up, especially if you're a teenager in high school. You're like, wait a minute, why am I the dishonor? I want to be the honorable. If you apply it to that, that may be disturbing, but this seems to have far greater implications than just that, right? What's the possible further implication of this? There you go. Someone just said it in a very direct way. That's the possible implication here, right? Some people are created for honor, for salvation, for glory. And others are not. And nobody wants to hear that. No one wants to hear that. Now, before... Before everyone loses their mind on the internet and gets upset with me, right? Okay. At least you don't have, you, nobody can get upset with me about an outline in this sermon. Okay. At least that's good. Okay. But this is important. All right. This is important. Just so that we remember this, because this really is looking at something from a, a, a think of it this way. This is looking at the whole subject from a heavenly perspective. And that heavenly perspective creates massive confusion in the pew and in our minds. So what we have to do is step away from the heavenly perspective. So let me just remind you, we got two people, right? We have two people, okay? We we can take Diane and Bobby, two people, right? Okay. Now, from a human perspective, forget God, forget theology, forget all. Just from a human perspective, the gospel is presented to them, right? One believes, one doesn't, okay? Well, in this case, we'll have Bobby being the believer, the first time we've ever used him as an illustration for a believer. Okay, he's the believer, Diane's the unbeliever, right? Okay, now, from a human perspective, Bobby believed, she didn't. And we could sit there and go, Bobby's smarter, Bobby's more sensitive, whatever the case may be, Bobby somehow believed. Now, from a human perspective, we still end up with what? A believer and a non-believer. From a human perspective, that's what we end up with, Okay? And, we're, and we may put the blame, well, I don't know why Diane wouldn't listen, we may put the blame on her, but at least we, we still are going to end up with one believer and one unbeliever. Now, if we come and add the heavenly perspective, the heavenly perspective would say, the reason Bobby believed had nothing to do with Bobby whatsoever, had something to do with God, and Diane didn't believe because, well, she is dead in her trespasses and sin, and now, now this gets to a very, this gets questionable, either because of God's inactivity, or she didn't believe because of God's activity. This gets into, you know, how do we understand, how do we understand what happens? But the bottom line is, it would be from a God perspective. But when you look at it from a God perspective or from a human perspective, what do you end up with? Same problem. For some people, why do they not like the God perspective? They got to get God off the hook. God would never do that. God would never do that. So, and, and so when you remove God, then it's Bobby's the good guy, 
And Diane's bad. Right? Okay, Twyla said amen. Okay, I don't know. No, okay, I'm joking. Right? So, it, somehow Bobby gets the credit and Diane gets the blame. And God gets off the hook. Right? And everybody loves that. That makes everyone feel so good. They're like, okay, whew. Because my God would never do anything like that. Just remember, that is really... I don't know how any rational person thinks that actually works. And you know why it doesn't work? Because forget Bobby and Diane. Let's go all the way back to those very words that are still the most troubling words in all the Bible. In the beginning, God created. That is the most philosophically damaging verse in the entire Bible. Because as soon as I know God created, what do I just need to ask? Did God know what was going to happen? And if God knew what was going to happen, why did he create? No, no, no. Genesis 1.1. I remember I've tried to say this over and over and over. The problem starts in Genesis. By the time you get to Romans, you shouldn't even have a problem with this. Like, I always, it always weirds me out when people are like, oh, I don't, Romans 8 and 9, an election, and no, 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 it can't be true. And I'm like, you have no problem with Genesis 1? Because Genesis 1, 1 is the most troubling verse in the Bible. Because as soon as, because we know what happens after Genesis 1, right? I mean, we look at our world, right? So when I read Genesis 1, knowing everything that happened, right? I, as soon as I get ready to read, in the beginning, God, and I see the next one, I'm like, no! Like, because when I read novels, I talk to the novels, and I, I, yeah, I, when I read the Bible, I talk to the characters, and I, when I watch a movie, I talk to the people on the screen, go, what are you doing, right? So, and, because that's just the way I am. So when I read Genesis 1, I'm like, no, don't, don't, stop, stop, time out, no, don't say the next word! Don't do it! It's a bad idea! It's a horrible idea! And he still went ahead and did it. He didn't listen to me. No matter how many times I yelled, don't do it. Don't create anything. It still happens. And then I'm like, okay, all right, well, maybe it's going to work out this time. Okay, because okay, Genesis 1 goes pretty good, right? Everything's good, right? Genesis 2, everything's good. I'm like, okay, maybe this time the story's going to work out, Right? And then I read the next chapter and I'm like, wait, who let the snake in? You create the place, you can't keep snakes out? Hey, I mean, come on. And it's a talking snake. That should have been a clue. Could you kept it out? And then I find out that the snake is being used by Satan. And I'm like, whoa, wait, 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 wait. Where did he come from? Right? So then I'm like, okay, I got to figure this out. So you start looking like, wait, 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 wait. You're telling me God created that? I'm like, I got a big problem. Did you not know? And I'm like, okay, maybe he didn't know. Now that's massively theologically a problem, but maybe I can convince myself he didn't know. Okay, well then, but after he does what, he, once he comes in, did you not know what he was about to do? Okay, maybe, maybe you didn't know. I got to do a lot if he didn't know, right? Okay, but the minute Eve messes up, then you're like, okay, okay, end the story right here. End it now. Okay, no more. No more garden, no more planet, no more snake, no more woman, no more nothing. Yeah, there, end the story. And then they all lived happily ever after. Well, because there's no one left. To, then it'll end a happy story. But he doesn't do that. 
Because I read the next chapter and I'm like, wait, you had kids? Why did you have kids? Because they're born sinners. And then Cain kills his brother. And you're like, come on, stop the story. Don't let it go any further. And then you get to like Genesis 5 and it's like, and he died and he died and he died and he died. and he. So it goes from very good to he died. I'm like, everyone's dying. Don't you think this story is messed up by now? Could we end the story? Oh, but no, 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 no. Can't end the story because in the next chapter, I'm going to flood the whole world. Yeah, how about flood the people on the boat? Because when they get off the boat, he takes off all of his clothes and gets drunk. Or gets drunk and then take off all of his clothes. I don't know which order, but he ends up without his clothes on, drunk. And then something bad goes on in that tent. We don't know exactly what goes on. And then, well, someone gets cursed who... We don't know why that person gets cursed. And the whole thing is weird. And then it just goes from bad to worse to worse to worse. And you're like, here we are now. So simply getting God off the hook for Bobby being a believer and Diane not a believer is minuscule compared to God getting off the hook for creating a world where millions of people will die and starvation and plague and war and crime and all of the horrible things that's taken place. Why do you got to get God off the hook for Bobby? You'd think you would be trying to get God off the hook for the whole thing. Isn't it weird that when we get to election, everyone loses their mind, but they're like, oh, Genesis is such a beautiful story. What? Are you out of your mind? It's the most twisted story I've ever read. I know I'm not supposed to say that, but it is. Now, the issue is whether I like it or not is irrelevant. What's, what's the, the irrelevant part? It's true. So I want you to understand, no matter what we do, you can't get God off the hook. He created it all. And at any time, he could have ended it all. And everybody say, well, I'm so glad he hasn't ended it all because he's giving people time to repent. And every day it goes on, more people die who didn't repent. Is that, like, like, I don't know how Christians give themselves, like, anything that fits on a bumper sticker, we're good with, right? Hey, okay, it works, right? Because No, but it doesn't work. So when we, we get to this, I know it's troubling. It bothers me. It bothers me. I don't know why one is a vessel for honor, the other one is for dishonor. But if you think about it, God's been doing that through the whole Bible. Why was Israel the vessel for honor? They were garbage. Right? Okay. True? I mean, we're, Abraham, oh, such a wonderful guy. I mean, what a great, Abraham, I'm Father Abraham, we sing songs about him. Was he such a great guy? I mean, I think that thing with Hagar was kind of messed up. Ray messed up. Moses killed someone. I mean, we can go on and on and on. Oh, they're all messed up. Right? So, how come one can be of honor and one of dishonor? Because it has nothing to do with what you do. It has something to do with what God does. God chose Israel. God, in this sense, would have chosen Bobby. And the honor has to be that of salvation, 
not just of earthly honor. That would not, I, I don't think that that even, that some people may try to get around this text, but clearly he's already talked about election in the previous part. Yes? And so what does he go on to say? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? God allows the, the vessel fitted for destruction. He shows the long-suffering for it. In other words, he lets them live for a long period of time. And then the next verse. And that he might make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy which he hath glo- uh, before prepared unto glory. Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So he's trying to demonstrate, hey, that God can kind of do whatever he wants, right? Yes? And then he transitions. He's talking about Israel, and who gets mentioned here? The Gentiles. Where in the world did they come into play? How how are we back to the Gentiles? Now, what does he say here about the Gentiles? I'm going to try to go through this quickly, okay? All right, we're going to need some cross-referencing, okay? So if you've got a Bible with good cross-referencing, we're going to be in Hosea chapter 1, chapter 2, and I believe Isaiah, and I don't know have the chapter in front of me. We're going to do some cross-referencing, okay? Everybody ready? So what does he say in that verse I just read? Okay. Even us, of whom he has called, and he now mentions Gentiles. Where is the Gentiles coming into play here? All right? Now, let's see what he says here. I'm going to grab uh, my notes. Every once in a while, I need my notes. Typically, I don't. But since this morning went so bad, I'm going to make sure I look at my notes. Okay. All right. All right. Here we go. If I can find it. All right. Uh, okay. Here we go. So, if we start in verse 20, uh, 25... As he saith, as he saith also in, uh, and and as you see here, it says O C. Do you see that in the King James? Okay, O C. Okay, you're like, what in the world is that? What is that? Hosea, right? Some uh, what is the? How does the NIV translate verse twenty five? And Hosea it says it says the word Hosea. Okay, all right. The King James just says capital O-S-E-E. Okay, okay, but it's Hosea. All right, right. So, but just so that you know, okay, that, that's why. All right, and it says, As he saith in Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not my beloved. Now, he's, he's quoting from Hosea. I think that's, is that chapter 2? Chapter 2, what? 23, I believe it's 2.23. I believe it's 2.23. Okay, all right. So, now, but here's the thing. We could get into a Hosea and look at it because we've already talked about how Paul uses Old Testament references and sometimes it's kind of weird. He kind of he, he uses them in a way that does, may not fit the context, but he's doing it under, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So here I'm not going to go back to context. What I want you to think about is what is he trying to say here? What is he trying to say by using those words? Everybody read them again. Jose, you can read it there in Romans. I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved 
I'm going to call my people, my people who were not my people. Who is he referring to? The Gentiles. The Gentiles. Now, it's just interesting. He's just had this whole discussion that God will have mercy in whom he will have mercy. He will judge in whom he will judge. Right? He's already dealt with the fact that some people are going to be like, this is messed up. This is messed up. And right after that, he talks to the Gentiles are going to be brought in. Now, this would call into question for some people, they would think that this is messed up. Especially many Jews. They'd be like, wait, wait, wait. The Gentiles? The Gentiles? Where did the Gentiles? How did they get in this story? They don't belong. We're God's people, not them. And he's like, I'm going to bring a people in who weren't my people. I'm going to bring a beloved who wasn't my beloved. And Israel's going to be like, this is not right. This is wrong. They're going to be bothered by it. In fact, this is going to be a major theme in the ne- for the next few chapters, right? Israel's not going to like this. Right? What does the next verse say? Okay, and it, yeah, and it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Now, he's referring to what there? Yeah, but uh, what, what verse is he referencing? Hosea chapter 1, I believe, I believe verse 10. All right, and once, and what, I, once again, he's trying to demonstrate that what's going to occur? Something's going to happen with people who are not a part of it, right? They're going to become a part of it. And it's going to call into question in some people's mind the justice of God. Right? The good, he's, he's been talking about that, correct? And then what else does he go on to say? Verse 27, he now quotes, Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. All right, so in other words, he's going to bring in a people who are not of Israel, but in Israel he's going to do what? Save a remnant. Now, immediately, how could this call into the question of God's justice? So you think, he's been talking about God's justice, right? And how some people would question it. Right? And, but he's made it very clear that he is the potter, we're the clay, he can do whatever he wants. So he's like, hey, Israel, I'm going to bring in Gentiles. And they're going to be like, that's not fair. And then he's going to say, with Israel, I'm going to save what? A remnant. And some Gentiles may look at Israel and say, that's not fair. None of them deserve to be saved. Do you know how many, ti- how many chances Israel's been given? So in both cases, it demonstrates God's mercy and grace. How one commentary puts it. I'll just read how one commentary describes this. Paul first quoted Hosea 2.23, a statement declaring that God would turn from the Jews and call the Gentiles. Then he cited Hosea 1.10 to prove that this new people being called would be God's people and the sons of the living God. He then quoted Isaiah chapter 10, verses 22 to 23, to show that only a remnant of Israel would be saved, while the greater part of the nation would suffer judgment. 
Romans 9.28 probably refers to God's work of judgment during the tribulation when the nation of Israel will be persecuted and judged and only a small remnant left to enter into the kingdom when Jesus Christ returns to earth. But the application for today is clear. Only a remnant of Jews is believing and they together with the Gentiles are the, are the called of God. The final quotation from Isaiah 1.9 emphasized the grace of God and sparing the believing remnant. Now, what does all of this prove? That God was not unjust in saving some and judging others because he was only fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies given centuries ago. He would be unjust if he did not keep his own word. But even more than that, these prophecies show that God's election has made possible the salvation of the Gentiles. The grace of God, and then he goes, there's some more they say here, but I'll stop right here. So now, let's go back to it. All right, let's read all of that now together. Verse 25, or we'll go back to verse 24. Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Right, so now he's, this is his mercy, right? His mercy. And then it says, as saith uh, Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, there shall be they be called the children of the living God. Where they were once called, you're not my people, you're not going to be called what? The sons of the living God. Because of God's mercy and grace. Next, verse 27. Isaiah crieth concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. I want you to notice something here. This is interesting. He mentions Israel, a remnant will be saved, right? And now he's mentioned Gentiles, and he's mentioning them as separate. Right? Gentiles are going to be called the people of God. But that, does that mean he's done with Israel? A remnant will be saved. Still showing a distinction there, right? Okay, instead of just trying to merge them together, he's still showing a distinction. Why? Because God has promises specifically to Israel, yes? That has to be fulfilled. That has to be fulfilled, or God is a liar. Next verse. Verse 28. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. Now, I, I, his idea of a short work, we could have a whole discussion about that, but okay. Then verse 29, And Isaiah said before, Except the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and made like unto Gomorrah. In other words, if it wasn't for God, right, saving a remnant, what would be left of Israel? Nothing. But why is there something left of Israel? God's mercy, God's grace. Let's all say it. God's, starts with an E, election. Why are the Gentiles in? God's election. Is every Gentile saved? Is everyone in Israel saved? Nope, not until the future promise, and then whatever's left of Israel will be saved. But at this point, that's not the way it works. God's electing grace. Yes? Now, why does that bother us? Well, on one hand, it doesn't, but on the other hand, it does, because what, what's, what's the thing that everyone in this room wants to say? Deep in your heart, what do you want to say? Why didn't he elect? Right? I mean, come on. 
If I, if I pull out my wallet, I've got, I don't know how much money I've got. If I pull out my wallet and I walk in, I'm, let's say I have a $100 bill and I walk over and I hand out $100 to her and I'm just like, I'm done. I walk away. Some, I guarantee one of the other kids are going to be like, this church is messed up and I hate her and I'm going to take it from her when she's not looking. Right? Come on. Okay, or you say, we're in church. I'll wait till I get out of church to say that. But you're still thinking it, right? Well, when I read this, I'm like, why didn't he elect everyone? God is just, just to be fair, he's just according to his definition, <laughs> okay? Because from us, we would not think that that's just, but it's the way it works, and it's hard to wrap your mind around that, yes? It's hard to wrap your mind around it. So then we've got the last section, right? Verse 30 to 33. We called 14 to 29 the justice of God. I'm not even going to ask you to, to tell me what this is, okay? All right. <laughs> what shall we say then? And remember, we believe this is the new section because it says, it asks the question, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. That's a good question. They're like, what? They, let's say she's Jewish, right? She's been following, you know, all the rules, all the feasts. She's been Sabbath, doing this, doing that. She has to cook extra on Friday, so they can't do anything on Saturday. She's just been following all of these rules, Right? And she's like, I've been pursuing righteousness, trying to do right. And then here comes Bobby, the drunken Gentile, right? I'm not saying he's drunk, but I'm just saying he's the ungodly one, right? And then all of a sudden, he ends up saved. And he's not following any of those rules. He's not following the dietary laws, not following the Sabbath rules. He hasn't done anything. He did a... He does whatever he wants. Okay? Probably, yeah. Yeah? We could go, even that would be a a, a part of the, it's going to become a part of the discussion in the early church. And then she's like, he can't be righteous. He's not following all the rules. And Bobby can like, oh, yes, I am righteous. Because it's a righteousness that comes by faith. Now, many in the American church still play the same game. No, 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 Bobby. Here's the test. If you don't do this, you're not saved. And Bobby, my test is I believe in Christ. That's the test. Right? Okay. Right? Because if God chose you, your, your righteousness is what kind of a righteousness? Imputed. Imputed. Does everybody understand what that means? It means he's declared righteous when he isn't. He's declared righteous when he isn't. I'm not saved because I'm more righteous than you. I'm saved because I have perfect righteousness imputed to me. And if you want to prove your salvation by your righteousness, let me just tell you right now, you're going to hell because I don't care how good you think you are, you're not good enough. And if you think that your righteousness proves your salvation, you're delusional because all I got to do is keep watching long enough and hard enough, and I'll be like, oh, I, thought it, I thought you could prove your salvation because it looks like you're a mess. Now, you may be able to cover it all up and hide it and delete the files on your computer and keep it on the down low, but sooner or later, someone's going to figure out that you're, you're a liar. 
And that's what happens in the church all the time. We've constantly proven to be what we pretend that we're not. Stop pretending what we're not. We're sinners who've been saved by an imputed righteousness. Aren't you glad? Okay, verse 31. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained the law of righteousness. Why didn't they attain the law of righteousness? You can't attain to it by your actions. You can't attain to it by your actions. Okay, I'm, I, I know we got, I, I know I didn't need to finish this, but I'm just going to stop and get really personal here, right? Because I think it's important, okay? All right? And I don't know how we'll end up next week because we got like one verse and I don't know what we'll do, okay? But I don't care. I don't care if I mess everything up because I got to do at least one good thing this morning considering Sunday school, okay? I listen to me. And I especially want all young people to hear this. Too many young people who grow up in the church think Christianity is just a list of rules which you have to follow to make your dad mom happy and to make God happy. And if you follow them good enough, then maybe you'll get to go to heaven. That's not Christianity you've been lied to. Okay, or understood it wrong. But a lot of people grow up in the church and they think that it's just, it's rules, it's rules. Are there lots of rules in the Bible? Yes, but you will never please God by trying to keep those rules. You'll never be good enough. You'll never be righteous enough. Being a Christian is believing in Christ and accepting the righteousness that comes to by faith. Because God gives you that righteousness, doesn't make you righteous, it declares you to be righteous, then hopefully out of love and gratitude for that, you seek to follow him. But you're never going to do it perfectly. That doesn't excuse it. We have to live up to our imperfections. We have to live up to it and go, man, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. No, we have to say, I did it. I'm wrong. No one else to blame. My fault. And all you can do is get back up. But my salvation is not dependent on how obedient I am. It's dependent on how obedient Christ was. I'm saved not by my obedience, but by his obedience. I'm not saved by my righteousness, but by his righteousness, which is perfect. That's salvation. And so many times Christianity gets reduced to nothing more than moralism, which is just a moral system. Is there morality in Christianity? Yes. Should we seek to pursue it? Yes. But you can't pursue it to be righteous because your righteousness is an imputed righteousness. Israel, no one has ever been saved by keeping the law. No one ever. They couldn't do it. In fact, it wasn't designed to do it. What's it designed to do? Show that you can't. I know it's easy for sometimes as parents, we teach the kids the Ten Commandments and we tend to teach them the Ten Commandments in what way? Do this, do this, do this. What we have to do is say, you don't do this. You're guilty. You can't. Christ did believe on him. Now, that doesn't mean we say just, we'll just throw, we don't go antinomian and throw out the law. But we just realize it's, we just, we so much make Christianity just a moral system. We do, we do better than those people. But the reality is, we're really never that much better than those people. We just change the way our, our, our sin is just different than their sin. Their sin may more be more blatant and outward, and ours is just covered up in fig leaves, right? But we just put on some fig leaves to cover up our sin. No, we're just as sinful, just in a different way. We pursue righteousness, but we never ultimately obtain it in our actions. 
Does that, does that make sense? So many times Christianity just gets reduced to moralism. Do this, do this, do this, do this. We should strive, but we never will accomplish it. It's always going to be tainted by sin. I hope that makes sense. All right. And then, did someone have the last, is that the next verse? There's one verse left. What does it say? Okay. They stumbled. Why did they stumble? They stumbled at the one to bring them righteousness. Because they were like, no, 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 we got it. Hey, Jesus, we got it. And that's the American church. We got it. We, we can do this. We'll be more godly than all of those horrible people outside the church. And then scandal erupts. Scandal erupts. Look at the SBC report. That's the most disturbing thing I've ever read in my... 300 pages of the most vile thing you can ever read in your life. Inside the church. That thing is horrific to read. The things that were going on in the church. I can't even describe here. I can't even describe in this setting. They were absolutely horrific. That was going on in the church. And Christians immediately go, oh, because they're not saved. And before you know it, you're going to be like, they're not saved, and they're not saved, and they're not saved, and they're not saved, and I'm the only one saved! And then someone's like, uh... I know you. You're not saved. We stumble because we want the righteousness to be ours. So that we can say, Lord, I think, I'm thankful that I'm not like her. I'm thankful I'm not like him. I'm thankful that I'm better. And what we should say, I'm a sinner, unworthy. And without your righteousness... I'm condemned because I'm not better than anybody else and you're not better than anybody else. As a Christian, we should pursue righteousness, but we can never obtain it. And Israel never figured that lesson out. In fact, if you go to Israel, guess what some of the Orthodox Jews are still trying to do? Obtain that righteousness. And guess what Christ still is to them? Stumbling block. And it's, he's still a stumbling block for many in the church who still think that their salvation is based off what they do, even though they claim that that's... They'll say, it's not based on what I do, but if I don't do it, then I'm not saved, which just made it based on what you do. Now, should we live a godly life? Yes. Is there any excuse for sin? No. But we have to keep it in its proper category or we end up destroying the gospel of grace and turn it into a gospel of works. All right, we'll pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Lord, I hope that Romans 9 now makes some kind of sense to everyone. It's a difficult chapter, but I pray that we will give it much thought and meditation. And even though we just, in a sense, finished it, that we never actually finish it, but always consider it and think about it. And I pray that it would have a profound impact on us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...